Welcome to Equinox, where we're striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 14. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hello, Joe. It has been a beautiful spring season for all of us, and the humidity has rained down on the earth. Yes. Welcome to the South in the summer. It's not that bad yet, but it's going to get a lot worse in the next month. I go in fighting. I I will not give up. I will never surrender against the heat waves that plague Georgia, but I'm never going to go out into the front lines. Like I'm going to stay in the shade. I'm going to stay on the porch, (laughs) find a fan, put it on. I essentially stay holed up from May until October. Then I come out of my hole for the wintertime. Yes, I understand. So have you done anything with bees lately? Well, I'm still waiting on my bee pheromone bee attractor to put in my beehive. Uh, don't know if it's going to work or not, but because of coronavirus, the uh, company I ordered it from, they're like, it's going to be delayed. So it'll come. But there's something I, I learned recently that was really cool. Mm-hmm. It's about vanilla orchids. They discovered vanilla orchids in Mexico during the colonial period. Okay. And for a very long time, people were growing these orchids in Europe, mm-hmm. but they weren't making vanilla beans. So vanilla beans all come from a floral plant. From an an orchid, actually. Yeah, okay, yeah. And there was a guy in Mexico, like, sitting down and hearing this buzzing of a bee. He notices this little teeny, teeny, teeny bee. I mean, tiny. I mean, I looked it up. This thing is incredibly small. It's called the uh, Mexican melipona bee. Huh. Now, mel is funny because mel is the root word for, for honey. So the melipona bee. And it knows how to lift the little lid on the vanilla orchid flower and fly in and flies out and goes to another flower. So it will pollinate the flowers. And the flowers only last for a couple of hours. Whoa. Okay. And so the guy's like, oh, boom, the vanilla industry was invented. What? No way. That is awesome. So I didn't realize you were talking about the, the beginning of vanilla. Wow. And I just learned that. And it's Neat. just a, a cool little factoid. Bees are awesome. Yeah. We were taking a picnic for lunch today and it was gorgeous outside and there was some bumblebees out there by the clover. And I love bees, to be honest. Yeah, me too. We don't see a lot of honeybees, but I have spotted them around my house and we do have a carpenter bee to take care of. Yes. I, every time now I see bees, like on the, on the clover, my neighbor's yard or the some, some shrubbery somewhere. I'm like, oh, come on over to my house, little bee. I got a nice place for you. Mm-hmm. But I just don't have that bee smelly attracting stuff yet. It's coming. We do have the lemongrass oil. Oh, do you? Have you tried it? Well, I've smelled it, but am I going to put it into the yeah. beehive without all the frames? Because I don't have all the wires on all the frames just oh, yet. Oh, oh, well, what you can do is put the frame, the frames that you have in there mm-hmm. and block the back of it up. Mm. You have enough for yeah, okay. a decent sized beehive. And yeah, you just drip a, maybe one drop inside. Maybe the use hive one of those only. styrofoam sheets to block the back. Yeah. yeah cut oh, it out to fit. Okay. And even if you had extra, I don't think bees would mind too much, but I wouldn't want them in the back half if there wasn't frames there. To begin with, yeah. Because if they start making comb on your. The walls of the inside without the frames, yeah. Or worse, they start hanging it from the ceiling, but they go perpendicular to Ooh. the frame tops. They're just going to weld everything together. Yeah, no, no, no. We don't want that. Yeah, you don't want that. But I do have more of the wiring coming so that I can complete the frames here in the coming days. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. You have yours all done, right? Yep. All you're waiting for is your bee lure. Yep. My bee nice. lure or bees. Maybe they'll fly in there by themselves. Now I could, you know, I could go and buy some bees, but yeah. it's kind of late in the a season already. Yeah. And I don't want to spend 130 to $150 on a box of bees. And especially if I don't know the, uh, the apiary. Because some, I mean, everyone's trying real hard, but some beekeepers have more nosoma or more hive beetles and it's just a massive problem Mm. and i don't know what kind of chemicals they're treating their things with and i know there's really no such thing as organic beekeeping i know some people try and yeah you might not have to treat your bees but when the bees fly out and come back you don't necessarily know what flowers are visiting what farm they're visiting Mm. so there's not really such thing as organic honey and most of the commercial guys they have to use chemicals because they have so many bees in such a small space you have to use things to kill off all the parasites Mm. So, Joe, last week, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're like, I got an idea for an episode. Yes. And well, you floated, we've been cooking these ideas for a while now. Yeah, we've flown back and forth and you're throwing ideas. But the one you had last week is like, oh, this is brilliant. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. So would you explain to the listening audience what I'm considering a brilliant concept? Oh, 
the theme of analyzing science fiction and debunking the myths of good movies, bad movies. Oh, yeah. And I'm rubbing my hands together. This is going to be exciting. Okay. This, this is like the, the best of your skills and knowledge base with my background because I've previously reviewed movies. Yeah. And made movies. Yeah. And so you're you're a person to analyze movies. I've written a few scripts for fictional movies, but all, all my f- released films are documentaries, but I've reviewed a lot of movies and, and read I've a lot of books a lot about of movies. it. Yeah. Yeah. And I probably love more movies. than me. You got a few decades on me. I don't have that many decades on you, do I? Well, at least at least one all plus. Right. All right, all right. <laughs> but I'm a movie buff and I love movies and I especially love science fiction movies. So good I, ones. I think I think one of the best things about science fiction is that because it's a field of real professional work, we can have examples of like real astronauts critiquing science fiction films depicting things in space. That is so yes. cool. Yeah, it's really cool. So Chris Hadfield did some of that, right? Yeah. And we're going to have a link to one of his examples in the show notes because it's just that entertaining. He is a retired astronaut, if I understand right. He's... Had two spent, spacewalks. He spent a lot of time on the ISS. Yeah. He ran the, sh- the satellite at one point. And he uh, brought a guitar up to the ISS and he sang uh, Major Tom. <laughs> and it was a brilliant video. But he said that once it gets a million views, they'll take it down because, you know, copyright and all that kind of things. And they did. They took it down after a million views. And that is sad. Because <laughs> first of all, you know, YouTube, a lot of people didn't get a million views back then. Yeah. But he did because it was brilliant. Of him singing in space. I do enjoy his personality and his take on movies. Yeah. And so that got us to thinking about us reviewing some science fiction. And before we go into it, I think it'd be fun to pick apart what science fiction really is. And you got my wheels turning because I kind of thought this already, but then you called it out as being fantasy. And I figured that would uh, turn off a lot of science fiction fans because they're not interested in the fantasy genre. They think of magic, they think of castles, the medieval era, dragons, funky beasts. It's all happening on Middle Earth. You know, there's orcs involved and elves, but that doesn't, that's not their thing. What they want is Earl Grey hot, you know, from the Enterprise. <laughs> And they want Star Trek and aliens and warp drives. Yeah, but that's just it. A lot of sci-fi bleeds over into the fantasy realm. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between them. Because you can have, you know, fantasy in space is a lot of sci-fi, what they call sci-fi anyway. And there's very few movies that have been actually like, we're going to do the science right. And this whole thing is about getting the science correct. There's only been a couple of them. But see, I don't think that there's necessarily any hard and fast rules. There's not. That science fiction has to be literal about everything. A good example, though, would you say, I know that a lot of people talk about The Martian being a good example of where most of the science holds up to scrutiny. I've heard some people try to rip it apart scientifically. And some of the, you know, I just disagree with some of their conclusions. The one thing, but the author admitted he took liberties with the wind in the beginning. Because you never get a dust storm that's, with a wind strong enough to knock over your big spaceship. Hmm. There's not that there's not thick enough atmosphere on Mars to do that. Yeah. So the, at the beginning, the, the Martian, if you don't remember, if you haven't seen it, we're not really spoiling anything for that film. But FYI, say, there's a lot of four letter language in this movie also. Well, it's Tons. safe to say that there's going to be some issues with language or other content problems with most science fiction films. Yeah. But this one in particular has a lot of gratuitous swearing. Yeah. And they, play on it and make jokes about it a couple of times. So, (laughs) yeah, but all right. But at the beginning, there's an astronaut that is hit by a hunk of metal that was ripped right off of some of their equipment in the storm. And you're saying that the storm could have never picked up winds hard enough to even lift that uh, metal satellite dish to like collide into it. But once it was moving, Mm. you know, Newton's laws apply. And sure, Sure. something flying through the air could have done exactly what it did, punctured a spacesuit, punked him in the butt belly. Yeah. And But the rest of the movie after that, they're trying really hard to get the science right. So you need carbon dioxide to grow a bunch of plants. Where do you get carbon dioxide from? Oh, you can use the hydrogen fuel from the, the spaceship that was left over. And you just got to burn it. But it, when you try to burn it, it makes hydrogen. You just might blow yourself up. Those sorts of things are really cool. Or even I um, really enjoyed The Martian for that kind of reason. I did too. Now, what I didn't understand was why he had to cut a hole in the roof of his transport vehicle 
when hmm. he went really, really far? Is it because he needed to stand up? He needed more space? Uh, surely that wasn't it. I don't, I didn't, I never got why he had to cut a hole and put a big balloon on top of it. Someone that has seen, read the book, maybe they could tell us if they want to you know, get back with us. I got that book on Kindle and I was reading it and it's like, wow, this book is awesome. And then halfway through reading, they changed the cover on me <laughs> and I saw Matt Damon's <laughs> face. And I said, that's not fair. They're making a movie. They marketed me. Oh, they got me. But they, they hooked me and they hooked me good. Nice. But it's good. Like as far as like a science fiction goes, I would not call myself a science fiction junkie or a fan in general. I don't seek it out uh, science fictions, but a lot of them are pretty good these days. And there's a lot of science fiction that has come out in the last several decades that are some of the best pictures of all time. In terms of critical acclaim, mass appeal, they're not just science fictions where it's all about technologies and space travel and aliens, but it actually has some good drama to it or a love story and other things you know, going you on. You want to catch my attention? Tell me a good story. Mm -hmm. I am willing to let a lot slide if the story is decent. See, I'm not a fan of Westerns, but if the Western has a good story, I'm going to still watch it again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a great Western, uh, Robert Duvall and Kevin Costner, believe it or not, I hate everything else he ever did. Um, Free Range. That was a great Western. It was just a really well done movie. A FYI, I don't mind a good Western. I don't mind a good heartfelt movie, but it's really got to be done well. And it can be done well. And it can be done well. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, I, I think that my one of my least favorite genres that is pretty mainstream are war films. But I've seen some that were really good. I just don't really care for the genre as a whole. Really? Yeah. Saving Private Ryan. A lot of people do. Unbelievable. Um, Gallipoli. Oh, my. Rip your heart out. Mel Gibson gets it, gets it in the end. We were just talking about Dunkirk. Yeah. Weird the way it was put together. But as far as art is concerned, an excellent movie. I, I enjoy war movies a lot. But see, they're realistic. And that's the point. They're trying to make it realistic. And they don't have to do science because we know it already happened. But if you want to hook me with science, don't pretend like you know what you're talking about. Like for instance, I know that one of the most famous series that everyone loves was Stargate. Mm. I never watched the series because I hated the movie so bad I would never <laughs> watch the series. And the problem with the movie, excuse me if I'm stepping on any toes here, was at the very beginning. And this nerdy scientist guy tells this other guy, we've carbon dated this unknown metal <laughs> wow. and i slapped my forehead yes i was like wait a minute it's metal dude it's not made of carbon and second how do you know anything about it how do you know how much carbon 14 and how carbon had in the beginning third if it's really that old it wouldn't have any carbon 14 and fourth you're saying it's an unknown metal like it's not on the periodic table of the elements <laughs> but that's a popular trope in some other science fiction uh, yeah i know but it just i just lost it right there i kind of feel like that's an example of them making magic in science fiction yeah they just if we just use here's an words, unknown element yeah no it didn't make any sense at all yeah they could have said something better and different so this is going to be a bit of an exploration to see where i as someone who doesn't scrutinize the science so much and you someone who does land differently on films so like I, I can tell you like my appreciation just for story aside from the fact that i may not be just a sucker for the genre but if the story holds up, I can still appreciate it and what the directors and the writers were trying to go for. And I think the movie that you chose to be the main focus of the discussion is This brilliant. is a good one. Yeah. So tell the audience what movie you picked. So before we go into the story, we're going to sound a spoiler warning, a spoiler horn. Yes, big spoiler warning. We are going to talk about Interstellar. This film came out in 2014. And speaking of genres, it is sci-fi. And But if you're not there for the sci-fi, there's a lot of adventure, there's a little action, and there's lots of drama. <laughs> lots of drama. Yes. And according to what you told me in our long mm -hmm. discussion leading up to this, there's a lot of philosophy in it also, which I was like, really? I had asked you to explain the philosophy for to me because I didn't realize it. Mm -hmm. But of course. What's going on? with a film like Interstellar is you just got to know that it was written and directed by the Nolan brothers. Okay. Jonathan and we just mentioned Nolan. one of their movies. Dunkirk. Dunkirk. Yeah. yeah. Great movie. 
And it's not one of the normal kind of films. Like it's an actual historical film, so they yeah. have to be consistent with that genre. But okay, war and history. What other movies have they done? Famous movies. Yeah, they're famously known for The Prestige. Obviously, Inception, top of the list. Oh boy. Okay, so The Prestige, two magicians fighting each other. One guy invents the ability to. That's a spoiler. Oh, you sorry. can't see that. Sorry. Okay. Well, I didn't say what happens. I'm going to bleep that out. Oh man. Okay. <laughs> But then they also make the Dark Knight trilogy. And let's... an Inception, which was, you know, what happens when you dream? Yeah. And can you dream in a dream? Yeah. Oh, what a cool idea. What happens if you die in a dream? What happens if you die in a dream in a dream? Oh, man. And good brilliant stuff. movie. Unbelievably cool. Yes. Fantastic action and science. Well, would you classify that as part science fiction? I would say. Yeah, like the, I would call that sci-fi. But it's one of those things where it, it's so consistent with its make-believe that it's not really trying to present you real world science, but saying in an alternate reality, we can get away with this one thing to make our story possible. Yeah. Which is hugely different from an example like Interstellar. So the Nolan brothers, they had scientists consulting for this film and they tried to, uh, to say to the scientists, we are going to tell the story now. You tell us how we can stage this as being theoretically possible and consistent with the science and physics that we have today. And I just shake my head. <laughs> they, Why they, is that? Well, the movie started out awesome. The whole premise is that the earth is dying. The plants are dying. Everything's infected. We can't, we're all going to die. We got to get off the earth. I was willing to ignore the fact that they could have, you know, cultured algae or bacteria to eat, or they could have grown things in greenhouses with artificial lighting, or they could have built space stations and gotten off the earth just in outer space. You know, fine. They could have solved their problems and none of the rest of the story of the movie would have even happened. Yeah, but see, I was willing to forgo that because of the way they set it up and it was you know, a good setup. Everything's dusty and, you know, out west somewhere and Matthew McConaughey is a cool guy anyway. And It's actually a pretty good cast. A great cast, yeah. We've got Matthew McConaughey in the lead. Yeah. But also the supporting characters, we've got Matt Damon mm -hmm. uh, in Hathaway, mm -hmm. Michael Caine, let's see, Casey Affleck, Jessica Chastain. I, I yeah. love these people. Yeah. They're awesome. great on screen. Awesome. Good cast. And so therefore, that's one of the things that actually makes the movie survivable is the acting. And so they get it all like, we got to get off this planet. We just happen to have this giant rocket ship here. I mean, this rocket ship is... <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. You're getting the, the, the spaceship before the cart and the horse. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. Sure? I'm not going to talk about it later on. So <laughs> okay. they, they get all these things together and they have this big spaceship. It's like the size of a Saturn V. And they say, we can get from here to this new thing that has appeared in the outer part of the solar system, which is the a wormhole. A wormhole. Now, where does wormhole come from? Nowhere. They don't know. They, they just attribute it to others, like the they, the beings, the extraterrestrials maybe, but they don't actually say that. They, they never use the word extraterrestrials in the film. That's right. At one point- and We they, never see any extraterrestrials. Yeah, no. Well, plants. Now, there's m several artificially intelligent robots. Yep. They refer to the others as bulk beings. And then at one point, an astronaut corrects them and says, no, they're not that. They're actually this other thing. But they never refer to them as extraterrestrials. That's right. For the most part, they're calling them they in the first part of the film. And so in the first, the first part, though, we got weird things happening on Earth. With, you know, dust. Environmental, and, calamity, and, chaos. Yeah. And it's just a cool romping, you know, romp, romping, romping. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a romping good story. Sure. We're going to die. Mm -hmm. is Very mysterious situation. Is, is there salvation for human beings? And uh, the main character is Joseph Cooper, played by Matthew McConaughey. His young daughter thinks that there is a ghost in her bedroom. Yes. And strange things are happening to the bookcase. But her dad says, no, I think this is actually something we can explain with other natural uh, circumstances, physics. Of course. Of course. So let's not talk about the end of the movie yet when I actually try to explain it. And this is when I'm really, I'm slapping myself. This is dumb. But anyway. What we're kind of doing, if you haven't noticed people, is we're kind of slipstreaming around the film and talking about it all at once. Kind of the way that the film wants us to understand and perceive time is one it, great It's the mismatch. fault of the filmmakers because they tried to <laughs> build something that defies the laws of time. <laughs> yes. Which we don't find out to the end, but we're not quite there yet. But you know what? Every time travel movie or show, especially TV shows that deal with time travel, they devolve into, into nonsense. 
eventually it's so complex and so confusing you can't deal with it anymore and you stop watching it. I've heard a lot of other critics put it this way. The only way that you can deal with time, time travel stories is say that they don't have to be consistent with other science fiction. You just got to see if they can make it convincing on its own merits. And can you buy the time travel of this one story? And they will eventually fail. And so there's three types of time travel movies. You've got Back to the Future. And I, I, that is like my favorite. Um, those are some okay. of my favorite films. And in a nutshell, what's going on there is every time you travel and you do a thing, you're actually changing your present. Yeah, you change the future. If you go back in the past and you kill somebody, well, you know what? That's going to change the future. But the idea in Back to the Future is he's looking at a picture he took with him from the future and the faces are slowly being erased. That's just dumb. It is kind of dumb. Yeah. Just, yeah. It would happen instantaneously if it happened at all, right? Yeah, so, okay, whatever. Even if he would still have the photograph with him, like under the circumstance of the future changing, he may not even have had the picture with him anymore. Exactly. The second type of movie is H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. Yeah, you can go back in time as much as you want, but you can never change the future. Yeah, everything you're doing has always happened. Yeah, no matter what you do, There's you only can't... one timeline. Exactly. That's a cool concept. Then there's a third type. There's a movie called Primer. Not many people have seen it. Again, there's some swearing in the movie, but it's one of my favorite sci-fi time travel movies ever. And it's basically these guys invent a machine that when you turn it on, it goes and it goes into the future. Well, you can go between the time you turn it on to the time you turn it off. <laughs> and then you get back into it and you come back to where you were again. So you can't go back in the past, but you go into the future and come back again. Okay. As yeah. you go in the future, you yeah. read the newspaper, you come back and you make some stock picks. Right. Of course. Okay. But what happens if you put a time machine inside a time machine? That's when your head explodes. And that's when that movie becomes unbelievably brilliant. I just, I'll just leave it there. Okay. So there's three Wild. types of that does sound interesting. Three types of time travel genres. I do think that there could be room for another, wouldn't you say? Which is a little bit like what they did with the Avengers. And basically it's this idea that every time you change something that has previously happened, it's kind of like you've created multiple dimensions. You have forked time so that there is another reality. Yeah, but you would never know the difference. Yeah. That becomes H. G. Wells's one timeline. Yeah. Yeah. So We'll, we'll, we'll give it to them, but it's one of those examples where it works within the world building of how the science works in those films as long as they explain it. In our yes. context, it works this way. It doesn't necessarily mean that that is something we can extrapolate to real science of the real world. Would you say that any of this can be extrapolated to realistic science? Any of what? So is there an example where all the laws of physics some form of time travel is conceivable, possible in the real world. Because it's trying to be passed off all the time in the movies that there are multiple dimensions that can be happened, caused by the changes of time travelers. As far as we know, we can go forward in time, but not back. And we all are time travelers in that sense. Yes. We're all going forward. But we can slow down the passage of time personally. So if we get in a spaceship and go really, really, really fast, we accelerate really fast, our personal time will feel normal, but for the people left behind, they're going to age. And so you could go to the future, but you can never go to the past. As far as we know about physics. Now, some you know, theoretical physics, oh, that's not true, Carter, because of this and that and the other thing. But whatever. <laughs> I'm, not talking about, I'm not talking about quarks and electrons here. I'm talking about human beings and bodies with significant amounts of mass. Okay. So do you want to go through the summary a little bit to refresh our audience if they haven't seen Interstellar lately? Okay, well... We're trying to save humanity. A yes. wormhole appears. We got this big old rocket. One more chance to save humanity. So we put a couple guys in a rocket. Oh, hold on, hold on. Well, I, I, is, I'm not summarizing it well enough? Your summary is too good. Oh. Uh, you're speaking in um, great generalizations. But I want to give a little bit more detail. And the thing you're missing is characters. You just got you got to address the characters in these scenarios. Character characters. There's very specific people in this movie. They're a cast. Well, we already <laughs> talked about the cast. Yeah, but only that they did a good job. Okay, so we have the hotshot pilot spaceman, Matthew McConaughey. His name is Joseph Cooper. Joseph Cooper, okay. And then we got the nerdy scientist guys. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about the NASA crew and their professors, their executives, their leaders. Okay, do we have to describe them more than that? No, pretty good one is worth mentioning. Two of them are worth mentioning, really, which are um, the brands. So you've got John Brand, Dr. John Brand, who is Michael Caine. And Anne Hathaway playing Amelia Brand, his daughter. 
another astronaut that joins Joseph Cooper for the mission. And then um, another worthy mention is Joseph Cooper's daughter and son. You've got Murph and Tom. Now, Tom is going to stay home and take care of the farm and go walk in his father's footsteps, while Murph doesn't really have a name or a purpose. But she was left hanging when her dad leaves planet Yeah, the Earth. Matthew McConaughey character, it's his daughter, little girl. She gets left behind when her dad goes out into space. So what ends up happening is Professor Brand, Michael Caine, back at NASA, takes her under his wing. And it, I think it makes total sense. It's, it's, it's a good uh, character-building moment situation that happens off-screen, not in a scene. Because his own daughter, an astronaut, has joined Murphy's father on their very important mission. So basically, they switch daughters. They switch daughters. Which is cool. It is. So Murphy winds up just learning about physics from Dr. Brand, the professor who's aging rapidly. But there were two plans that this Professor Brand had in mind. Yeah. Save the world, save everybody on planet Earth is plan A. That's really interesting from the philosophy standpoint. What do you do if you want to save humanity? Do you Get save, them off planet Earth. Do you save all the people? Or do you plant humanity somewhere else and save the species? And that was plan B by the same man. So yeah. got. But that's brilliant. Yeah. What would you do? Well, hey, I, listener, what would you do? Yeah, How do you save people? Can you move billions of people off the planet? Can you afford to do it? Is it technologically feasible? And I think that that is definitely what this film was on about and wanted to explore. It wanted to get you to vicariously wrestle with this difficult choice along with the astronauts because they, time is of the essence. They don't know that they can go back in time. They don't know that they have time to go back to Earth and rescue anybody. But they've got to find a new home world for people back on Earth, or they've got to plant a new colony for the human race to survive when Earth goes up. And that's unfolding in the movie as a, you know the characters are discovering that there's these little frozen embryos that they've been carrying around unknown to most of the cast. And wait a minute, that's been the plan the whole time to leave everyone behind, but to raise a new crop of babies on some foreign world yeah, and let everyone else die. Well, see, oh, what a- when, when you say the, the majority of the cast, it, it, let me clarify, it's more like everybody on planet Earth doesn't even know any of this is going on. Yeah. Meanwhile, within NASA, there's different groups of people who think that plan A is the only plan and they're not taking plan B really seriously. While others have been told by the Professor Brand, Michael Caine, actually plan A is never going to work. And I don't think it would work. And I've never been acting on the idea that it will. we got to assume that plan B is really our only choice. If you had to evacuate billions of people, mm-hmm. elderly, sick, infirm, children, all those people are going to die within a couple of years. Just to the rigors of planting a new colony. Why would you take them? Well, because there's no food for them. You're leaving them to starve. Yeah, leaving them to die because the moral quandary. You can't leave them to die. Right. But practically, they're dead in 70 years anyway. All those billions of people, 70 years later, they'll all be dead. So whether they die in 50 years or 20 years. All the billions of people in this scenario at the present, yeah. In the present, yeah. So whether they die in 10 years, 20, 50, 70, doesn't matter. They're all dead. (laughs) So you're going with plan B? I'm going to go with plan A. Just say it. Because I, w- I want my mom and dad. I want all the family. I want my aunts and uncles. I want everybody at church. Uh, you know, I, there's a lot of people I would miss. Yes, but first of all, going back to the, you can plant greenhouses, you can raise algae, you can build space uh, stations around the sun. You don't have to be on Earth. So that's already stuck in my back of my mind. Like, you know, you don't have to die. Yeah. Well, see, the premise that they want you to buy into is that you can't use enough shuttles to get everybody off of planet Earth in a timely fashion with the resources on Earth. What you really need is you need to crack the laws of gravity so that you can like manipulate gravity and space and just lift whole habitats right off of planet Earth. Which they can't do at the beginning of the movie. No, they can't. And so they send these guys through the wormhole. Their aim is, one, find a new inhabitable planet. And two, maybe, just maybe, these astronauts going through the wormhole with the assistance of their technology, their robots, they can collect enough data on gravity. They can report back to NASA on planet Earth. Here's how gravity works. So now you can manipulate it any way you want and get those habitats right off of planet Earth. Much easier than using rocket fuel. So they go through the wormhole. At this point is where they should have ended the movie. <laughs> that is we're only not even at the halfway point. Exactly. We're not even halfway. But from here on out is where my scientific head, <laughs> I'm just shaking my head. Oh, my. They find three planets. Originally, there were going to be 12 
worlds that they were going to check out. Okay. But there was only three planets where astronauts reported back, hey, we got an inhabitable spot. Yeah, so they sent people out first, and this is the second wave of people going out. Mm-hmm. And they want to say, can we live there or not? But these three planets are near a black hole. Yeah, they're, they they specify that all along the way. It's You can see it even when you're traveling to the first world. They call the black hole Gargantua. It's, and it's actually a stunning thing to see visually in space in the film. They actually, one of the cool things is they consulted a lot of, you know, interstellar physicist type people say, what would a black hole look like? We want to put it on film. And those guys are like, wow, we never thought of that before. And they actually developed a model for the film, which is the most accurate black hole conception that anyone had thought of before. Really neat. So they act, that film actually helped advance science. But listeners, understand that old movie, The Black Hole from the 1980s. No, black holes don't suck things in. That's dumb. Wait, what? They don't suck things in any more than the sun sucks things in. Really? It's just a gravity source. You can orbit it just fine. Well, what happens if you go into the hole? Doesn't the, you'll like, never get out again? Yeah, but it's but can you even like not be crushed under the weight of it? You would not be crushed. They 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 call it being spaghettified. <laughs> okay, so you would the your your body your atoms will be ripped apart. <laughs> okay, because the tidal forces are so, like um we talked about what causes tides. We did not. We did that in a previous episode. Right? We did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in the previous episode, we we discussed what causes tides. And that is the moon is sucking the earth towards it. And there's a difference between the part of the earth that's closest to the moon compared to the earth on the other side of the moon. There's different gravitational attraction to the moon. That's called a tidal force. The tidal force, when you're getting closer to a black hole, is so strong, it would literally rip you apart molecule by molecule and then rip your molecules apart. Oh, man. So, no, you can't go into a black hole. But it's just a gravity source. It might be, you know... 30 suns worth. It might be a billion suns. It might be, I don't want the smallest one. I looked this up a little while ago and I forgot what it was. It was actually surprisingly small. <laughs> As in how many masses of a sun? I don't think our sun can make a black hole, but it might be, uh, listeners, forgive me. I'm going to guess here. Three and a half. Take three and a half suns, 10 suns, squish them into a very small space and you get a black hole. Well, so what? You can orbit that. <laughs> so why don't you pick up there and talk about the astronauts going to the first world, the okay. tidal world. The tidal world. Okay. Which was cool, sort of. Yeah, and, and so you just want to pivot from bl the black hole to planet, the, uh, the first planet. Okay. So on, on the black hole, the thing is, is that it is in the vicinity of their system, their solar system, where they have these worlds that they're going to. Yes. Potential habitats for the human race with planet A. Okay, so they got three potential planets. So you got to make some hard calls here because there's going to be time uh displacement or what do you call it's it it's called time dilation dilation yes the closer you get to the black hole the the slower your relative well it's, it's not the black hole that they're thinking about first it's the planet itself the closer to the black hole you get the slower your personal time goes compared to where you started now you feel normal but your time will go slower compared to your starting point farther away from the black hole and here's where they fail well, see, they wind up using time dilation like that on the first planet in the movie, too. Yeah, but this is where they fail. Okay. If you've got, if this is one solar system, I was very confused watching they, this. I don't think that they clarify that. Yeah, but if it's Presumably, one they're solar within system, reach for the rocket fuel they have on their shuttle. And it's, they, they can't take too much time flying from one system to another. It's not like they have a warp drive. True. But if it's one solar system, those planets have to be orbiting the sun, which means... Well, that, you don't mean sun, sun as in... Our solar system, sun, you mean a star? A star. Okay. Our sun is a star too. We'll call that sun for that solar system. Okay. Planets have to be orbiting it, which means the sun has to be far enough away from that black hole that when they come around the orbit between the black hole and the sun, it doesn't get ripped away and stuck into the black hole. That, that, the, that the star, yeah, the star, the, the black hole. The tidal forces have enough. to be such that yeah. it won't rip the solar system apart. Yeah. So all of those planets will have the same amount of time dilation. Oh, if they're really? orbiting the same sun, if there's three different suns, you can have one sun closer to the black hole and one further away, and that will give you a different time. But then again, it's still got to be far enough away from that black hole. The planet doesn't get pulled away from its own sun. Yeah, it's not depicted this way in the film. Yeah, it's like it's different for each planet. Confusing. So they go to this first planet and they land. And one, it's really cool concept that scientifically falls on his face. Honestly, every scene has stunning cinematography. Yeah. And the way they stage every location is just interesting. Yeah. So when you see this first other planet and it's not planet Earth, you're kind of hoping, you're kind of interested in, well, they have the 
signal from the astronaut who went yeah. there 10 years earlier. Supposedly, this could be an inhabitable planet. Yeah. But all you're seeing is a pretty tranquil ocean. And it's like, what is It's not going very deep. On? They're walking around like ankle deep water. Yeah, but it just goes in all directions as far as the eye can see. Yeah. And they're walking around. And this is where the marine biologist gets me, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then the physicist <laughs> is going to get me in a minute. They find a bunch of broken metal and like a parachute sort of thing. And it's like, the wreckage of the previous it's the wreckage of the previous mission mission. Yeah. So they had landed, they had sent a signal and then something destroyed the ship. And they're like, what did this? Uh, we don't know. Hey. And then all of a sudden Matthew McConaughey's character is like, wait a minute, this literally just happened like a short time ago. This was not 10 years ago. We got to get out of here because a giant wave is coming. And this water planet had these massive waves. Now, I don't think they ever explain where these waves are coming from. I don't think they did do either. Maybe something to do with the proximity of a black hole, which would make no sense. What I found out later researching this online was that there was one physicist they consulted with on many issues. When, they, when the storytellers, the writers wanted to basically get the story to do something, they went to this physicist and said, please propose a way that we can make this work. And that was Kip Thorne. And so he said, hey, if actually let me look it up here in my notes, because uh, this this is let, this. let me make a guess. I'm guessing he's treating a black hole like we treat our moon and the planet revolving with a black hole on one side. The tidal forces are such that it pulls a giant wave on one side of the planet and another giant wave on the other side of the planet. Exactly. And that's the thing that the movie doesn't necessarily say. It's supposed to take the astronauts and the audience off guard. The astronaut who first landed there yeah, roughly 10 years guard. ago, plus the main characters on the, of the crew of the Endurance and the audience. So nobody would expect there to be tidal waves on this planet for some reason, yet they should have taken gravitational forces in you know, into consideration. But okay, but here, here's what the scientist said. Kip Thorne, he writes a book actually called The Science of Interstellar. And he, he in the book, he explains here was his... Rules of thumb. Number one, nothing in the film will violate firmly established laws of physics or our firmly established knowledge of the universe. And I think he fails. Okay. Number two, as speculations often wild about ill understood physical laws and, uh, and the universe will spring from real science from ideas that at least some respectable scientists regard as possible. So those are the two rules he uses to explain away all of the science of the movie. And the best attempt crumbles for multiple reasons. First of all, if you had tidal forces like that, um, it would also be affecting the star you're orbiting. Whoa, really? Yeah, that star is, you know, being affected by the black hole also. And, I, and as you're if you have a tidal force that's strong, as you're orbiting your star, you get close to the black hole and further away from the black hole. Well, theoretically, if if it's or oriented that way, if everything's like like the, our moon going around the Earth, well, at one point the Earth, the moon is between the sun and the Earth, and at one point it's on the other side. So as we're in a plane. Well, if that's like that, as your planet goes around the backside of the sun, it's going to be too close to the black hole, and the, the whole system would fall apart already. I don't I, I don't think you can have that much tidal force. If you're orbiting the other way, like you're perpendicular, like your your star and your hmm, how do I say this? It's like it's rotating like a bicycle, like a wheel, a, 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 like a wheel on a on a vehicle. It's going up and down on rotation. Yeah, if if the axle of your wheel is pointing toward the black hole, and the axle is your sun, and your planet is on the wheel, mm -hmm. there's not going to be any tidal forces. <laughs> it's going to be the same amount of attraction to the black hole always, and so you wouldn't get this giant wave. And here's where the marine biologist gets me. I know from all my PhD marine biology physics classes and, and oceanography classes that when the height to width ratio of a wave exceeds a certain threshold, that's when the wave crashes. That is interesting. So like you just can't have a wave as big as you want and as tall as you want no. to infinity. No, you cannot do that. That It doesn't work that way, especially because they're on a planet with basically Earth gravity. Mm -hmm. And this stuff is water. We know what water is, right? They're stepping in water. Mm -hmm. And we know how high and skinny a wave can get before it crashes. So you can't propagate a tidal wave hundreds of feet high that's skinny around the entire planet. <laughs> Ain't going to happen. Well, what if it was just like, you know, the size of the Atlantic Ocean? And it, <laughs> you know? If they had landed in on the edge of the continent. Which uh, presumably there's none because they never explained that. But well, they, the waves would have washed away all the 
all the continents if there was a continent. Yeah, a tidal wave like that. So, but if you land on a shallow shelf and there's deep water on one side, then you can get a giant wave building up. And when it hits the shallow water, it would mount up very quickly and then crash. That's what surfers use all the time. Now you go out in the Pacific Ocean, there's no waves. But you go over a reef, the same exact waves will go up 20 feet, 15 feet, and you can surf on them. Because when there's a wave, there's a significant amount of movement up and down, even the depth. You go down 40 feet, you might be going up and down a little bit. That movement, when you go down it, now the water's only five feet deep, all that up and down movement collapses together and the wave goes high. Now, instead of being five feet deep, it's 15, 20 feet deep, but then it crashes. So those, these waves are physically impossible in my mind. Maybe I'm wrong, but there's multiple reasons here. I'm, I'm like, uh, this is not making any sense. See, now the waves make sense now that you explain it, but I don't hear anybody talking about the waves. What I hear from the general public and friends and critics online is how the time dilation was messing with their mind. Like, can that actually happen? So on the planet of the tidal planet, they, they're there in the scene for not even 25 minutes. And it, it's basically unfolding in real time. They fly down from the atmosphere, they land, they get out, they look around, they discover the wreckage, they see the tidal wave coming, they get in trouble, somebody dies as they're trying to escape the wave, but they have to ride the wave. And now their shuttle is waterlogged. They, they argue about what to do now. And did they make a mistake a moment ago? Then there's another tidal wave coming. And it's not even been a half an hour totally tranquil waters between these enormous waves. Yeah. And then they get slammed by the second one, but they're able to launch and they get out back into space. So when they get back to the endurance, which is, what would you call that? That they're using like a little ground shuttle, but they use the endurance as their main spaceship, main spaceship. Yeah. So they, they get back to the main spaceship, the endurance which has the ability to hold several shuttles and their astronaut friend on the crew that has stayed there says it's been like 23 years. But they, uh, the claim is that they were down there for three hours. We saw everything they did and it wasn't even half an hour. And then they get back to this. It might've been three hour total transition from the ship to the ground, back to the ship again. Yeah, but not three hours on the ground or, or affected by the gravity. Yeah. Here's the other thing. If, the time was that distorted. Of course, they're sending signals back to the mothership, right? I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's going to be communication. Yeah. And everything is going to sound like this. Probably slower than that. It's probably <laughs> slower than that, based on the fact that how, how long were they gone? Three hours, but supposedly 23 years. Yeah, 23 years and three hours. That's <laughs> that's 23, uh, three to 23. Uh, it'd be about... Uh, 15% the speed. Wow. So forget it. That's just, no, actually, no, 12%. 12 to 15%. It, it's going to be really slow, and it would have been noticeable. <laughs> so, okay, but that's not the worst of it. Yeah, the, no, it, I mean, while there's a lot of interesting parts of the movie, and I'll, I'll speak on behalf of the story, dramatic-wise, because it has such a compelling cast. Yeah. Stunning visual effects and, and good music, an outrageous soundtrack. Yeah, the score that is pleasant to hear. Yeah, and also epic. And you're like, this is awesome! Wow, yeah. Wait a second, didn't they need a Saturn V size rocket to get off of Earth? Yeah, they did, Rob. Actually, before they even got out of our solar system, before they reached the black hole, or the wormhole, they had to have to, a to that lift rocket. off out of Earth's gravity. And now they got this little shuttle thing and they're on a, a planet with Earth-like gravity. Where's their Saturn V rocket? Oh, so even getting back to where... They got this little shuttle thing. Why didn't they use a shuttle to get off the Earth in the first place if it's that powerful? Yeah. And they don't have that stuff for their ship. No, <laughs> it's massive terrible. disconnect. Massive way to say this is a huge problem. Come on, guys. You're trying to be all scientific-like and you didn't notice that you can't get off your planet? <laughs> The tidal planet or the second one. Or the third one. Yeah. In the same shuttle, with the same amount of fuel. So uh. so when they get back to the Endurance, they go to planet number two with Dr. Man. And we don't need to go into that part of the story so much. I think where, the, where I want to go for the rest of our show 
is when we reach the climax because that is a bigger, okay. thornier, complex issue. But they do. They're on, they're on the second planet, and you know, people getting blown up, and, and it's really cool. Yeah, you know, stress and angst, and the, the, you plot have an twisting ash- and evil scientists yeah. trying to steal things. It was really cool. And again, they're in their little shuttle, and they lift off and go back to the mothership. Wait a second. Not an awful lot of time has passed it this time around, but time has passed. Yeah. Yes. And so now they're on a third planet. Well, they don't go straight to the third planet. They stay at the Endurance and they're traveling to the third planet. Okay. So this could be a different star or it could be another planet in the same solar system. Well, in either case, it's close enough that they can use the Endurance. But it's the pilot Cooper who figures out the best thing they can do for their fuel and time is to slingshot around the black hole Gargantua to get to planet number three. Of course, of course. But it's because they got to reserve their resources if they hope to get to the third planet. Plus, who knows? They may have to leave the third planet. So in their puny little shuttle with their puny little (laughs) fuel supply. Okay, all right, we can go with that. But as it turns out, in doing the slingshot around Gargantua, they got to drop some weight. So they got one of their AI robots in one of the shuttles and g- killing two birds with one stone. They got to drop the weight, but they could also send this robot into the black hole and perhaps he could collect some data about gravity and relay it back to them so that they could send that stuff back to NASA on planet Earth. Fine. What, <laughs> what do you really think, Rob? Well, <laughs> I mean, it's not like you, do, you don't go into a black hole. You approach a black hole from a great distance and your time dilation starts kicking in and you start redshifting quite a bit and you get closer and closer and closer and you're destroyed before you hit the event horizon. The event horizon is where light can't escape, not where people can't escape. Because see, the way that Star Trek and other science fiction wants to propose it is that you can actually travel into the black hole and you can get the Enterprise to pop out the other side. Yeah, ain't gonna happen. <laughs> but it's not, there's not, I mean, that, that limit is literally for photons, which are subatomic particles. <laughs> Let alone metal and people. Exactly. And exactly. I mean, atoms will be destroyed long before they get to the event horizon. So, arg. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was clear that it was basically just sending a shuttle into oblivion. Might as well burn the metal while you're at it. But then Cooper does the same thing. So surprise, surprise, there's only two astronauts left on our uh, endurance at this point. He wants Dr. Brand, Amelia Brand, the last astronaut, to make it to the third planet and hopefully survive and colonize using plan B. But he, what he really wants to do is fall into the black hole too because, well, you know, he expects to die. But if he can get that data from the robot, TARS, then just maybe he could use that and get it back to his daughter somehow. Yeah. So two. How? Yeah. Why would you even consider this? So two shuttles. If light can't into a black hole, escape the event horizon. You can't even get to the event horizon. But once you do get to the event horizon, nothing gets out. You See, can't send a light beam. So information has to propagate on a physical substance. So for him, I'm going to send a, a signal. Yeah, that's called light. Not going to happen. <laughs> no, black hole can bleed energy. Because subatomic particles, they they wink into existence and wink out of existence. And wow. because of quantum tunneling and things like that, they can actually, whoop, whoop, I just popped outside the event horizon, whoops. But there's no information content. It's just energy. It's just heat. It's just random noise. So if you tried to shine a flashlight and blink Morse code from inside of the event horizon, not that you could because you wouldn't exist, but you're blinking it toward the event horizon, right? The light will never get there. It would just be, you know, theoretically anyway, completely obliterized inside your black hole. And that obliterized energy is just kind of randomly popping around into and out of existence because E equals MC squared. This is when it and- lost me. Because at this point, we've got two shuttles, the the robots and astronaut Cooper's falling into the the event horizon. Oh, oh. And they're showing that it's being hit by debris in the, the, the atmosphere of the black hole or something. And the debris is rending the ship into pieces with holes. 
So it's not like it's being pulled apart atom by atom, but it's actually being hit by space debris. That's because he's nowhere close to the event horizon. And he's a billion miles away from it, maybe. Who knows? I mean, <laughs> but this, this is gargantuan. It is a, a really big distance before you get there. Probably. So, so then the thing is, while the readouts on his technical data of his, I want to say the cockpit of the shuttle. Is it called a cockpit on a space shuttle? Yeah. Okay. The, the shuttle is telling him, eject, eject, eject. Into the black hole. Wait a minute. <laughs> and Cooper does it. He, he pulls the eject. And at this point. He lost me with that. All reality is thrown to the dogs. Yeah, so. And this becomes <sighs> the ending where it was so disappointing. It started off so good. Grounded was, in a farm. You know, yeah, middle and, America. And I was willing. I love dystopian ideas. Yeah, dystopia is my favorite genre. Well, it's got zombies or sci-fi or whatever. You know, humanity struggling, and it's the essence of man and the the whole what would you do? And it's not where it's not the the monsters. It's what do we do in the presence of the monsters? How, you know, what are we as people? That kind of a, I like that. Yeah, and what we do here is it changes up everything. Yes. What they, but they've made a lot of allusions to it. So they tried to prepare you. If you notice it in subtle ways, it's like, oh, I see what you did there. Now, retroactively, you gave us lots and lots of hints of this. Yeah, the, the, the dust that <sighs> was falling through the light beam, which spelled out something in Morse code. For Murph Cooper in your yeah, bedroom. Yeah, for the little it was girl. actually her dad all along. Yeah, because in the future. Oh. So the way that this was explained to me... From a few sources, it seems like all the internet had to put their brains together to figure this one out. Yeah. What they figured out was that when Cooper and Tar's shuttles reach a point where they both ejected, they were rescued inside of a tesseract, inside of the black hole, maybe, or it didn't necessarily have to be there, but that one way or the other, while falling towards the black hole, they wind up in this tesseract. Yes. And where it is... It, nobody knows. No one needs to know. And we used the big word and everyone's like, a a and you, I don't even know if the movie used the word. I don't know but if that used was, the word either. That's what the internet called it. Now, if you ha- saw that horrible Chris Pine and Oprah Winfrey movie called A Wrinkle in Time, which is based on an incredibly good book by Madeline Lengel, but because Oprah was involved, they took out all the Christian references and made it extremely pagan. Okay, beside that, the movie was terribly done. The sound, the lighting, the colorization, it was just, ugh. <laughs> and I think they tried, the couple places they definitely changed it, unchristianized it, but they really did try to stick to the storyline in the book, which made it an unworkable movie. But they had a Tesseract. And their Tesseract was, if you think the frequency of the Tesseract, which was the frequency was love, of course, you know. Which actually was a huge part of Interstellar. They talk about yeah. love being this thing that brought them together into the Tesseract. It's yes, funny yes, that yes. that has a lot of overlap. But but for them, if, if you think the frequency of the Tesseract, you can enter it and you can fly through space. Okay, whatever. But a Tesseract is something coming to us from the, I think, the 1880s. It was a mathematical thing. The first time this, this, this word was invented and it was really cool. It's, it's this. You know the difference between a square and a cube. A square is two-dimensional. A cube is three-dimensional. A square has one face, four sides, and four corners. A cube has six faces, four, eight, 12 sides, and eight corners. Okay, so 2D, 3D, what would something in 4D look like? Oh, well, you can't draw it on a piece of paper, but mathematically, you can talk about hyperdimensional things all you want. You can have a 20 a dimensional something. It's just in math, you can do things that you cannot possibly do on paper, things that cannot physically exist. So the Tesseract is a 4D square. Well, and the way that they try to depict it in the film is cool and artistic and mind-bending. And this is actually something that the filmmakers have done before in another movie, Inception. So in the dream worlds, they try to explain that you never want the people in the dream to be able to get out of their environment. So any path has to lead back into like a puzzle where just in a dream state, rejoins with itself. You can never walk right out of the dream environment. Well, this was all based on the look of it in the film of Inception and Interstellar for the Tesseract. This is based on the artwork of a artist, M.C. Escher. And he was a graphic artist who made mathematically inspired woodcuts. We've all seen his pictures. Yeah, it's gorgeous, a fascinating, interesting looking stuff. 
But, you know, he even made one called Relativity. And I think that if you just see that, it's clear like that is the inspiration for a lot of the look of the Tesseract of Interstellar. So what you got is Joseph Cooper and Tars have this conversation, which is entertaining in the Tesseract, figuring out what's going on because they're able to peer through the bookcases to things that happened with Murph his daughter, 23 plus years ago. So they're essentially, they're in like a 5D library. But for no apparent reason for its properties. Yeah, it's, they're just there. Oh, we're in a place, but, a weird place with backs of books and backs of bookshelves. And I can look between the books and there's my daughter. And I, yeah, jump over this part, this other little bookshelf area. I can see my daughter a different age. And, and oh, on she, a different day. Yeah. Oh, I'm shaking my head. And like, jo- make it stop. Make Joseph's, it stop. Yeah, Joseph and Tars figure out, well, the others, the they helped us get here so that we could relay information back to Murph so that she could save everybody with plan A because we've now figured out gravity. Tars got the data. We can give it to Murph on my watch. And I'm like, I don't care anymore. <laughs> you, you've lost me. Again, time travel movies. They invariably fall into one of those three classes. And if you try to do something different, you lose. And the big problem here is how does the future build something for you to use if you're dead? If you didn't get it built and figured out, you would have been dead and there would be no future people. And so, I don't know, maybe ph- <laughs> maybe philosophically you can think of things like this, but I'm, I'm just like, I'm too practical. I think that at the end of the day, it kind of comes back to our original question is this compelling science fiction? And we brought up the point that science fiction at the end of the day is really just fantasy in space with technology and yeah. you, exploiting and using physics as a technology, but in a make-believe-y sort of magical way. We get to warp all of the reality and we can say the physics work in a totally different way in this reality. And that's the thing is that Interstellar just annoys you because it, it wants to pass itself off as so scientifically consistent that then when they do this dramatic climax, they're going to blow your mind with the possibilities of something that might be revolutionary to science. You know, yeah. a new discovery, like on the scale of Sir Isaac Newton, you know, figuring out gravity's mathematical equations. Okay, right. you, know, you know, the uh, those Internet uh, videos, how it should have ended. Yeah. You've seen those on yeah, YouTube? Yeah, yeah. All right. How it should have ended. Matthew McConaughey's character completely wastes... <laughs> McConaughey. Okay. Matthew McConaughey's character completely wastes all his time. Because <laughs> he just spent decades exploring these planets while his smarty pants daughter figures out gravity without his help. And she saves the world. <laughs> and he comes back at the end and she's all old and he's still kind of young. And she's like, sorry, dad, we didn't need you after all. <laughs> <laughs> and that would have been that would have been actually a very poignant sort of an ending. It could have been done. Like, oh, humanity and the angst and the we strive and we fail and some people win and some people don't. And that would have been a cool ending. But it did go off into fantasy land. It certainly went into way fantasy land. Mm. Oh well. That being said, I really enjoy things about this movie. But I'd I watch do, it again. I do have all these problems with I, the movie. I would watch it again knowing all the flaws because it was still a good movie. It's an example of I can appreciate what the Nolans were going for. And it has a lot of interesting philosophical ideas that we don't have time for in this episode. But what we have said here is very interesting in the vein of Equinox, because I do think we've covered the point that I think is so much, so much fun to explore. Hey, can we do a poll? Hmm? Can we do a poll? Yeah, we can. Okay. Our poll on the website, plan A or plan B? (laughs) Yeah. I vote for plan B. I think plan B, plan A is ridiculous. You can't do it. There's no reason to try. Well, I, I'm going with plan A because I don't want to lose the rest of the human race. <laughs> Species must survive. It's sort of like in warfare, right? You know, you have a, you have a group, they're the forlorn hope. They know they're going to get wiped out, but they're going to save everybody else. You know, the people who are in a, in, a, in a retreat, you guys stand in this breach while we run away. Take one for the team, guys. Just in this case, we're asking 7 billion people to take one for the small team of other people <laughs> later on. But but you, 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 the way you argue it is, look, well, there's no way out of this, but humanity can still live. Yeah. We can pull together and send, you know, the young kids off or the embryos off or whatever it is. We'll send a small group of people off and humanity will still live. I get it. Well, that's not what the filmmakers wanted you to think. No. They definitely wanted you to be rooting for plan A and never take plan B very seriously.
Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you did enjoy this one, give us a, you know, if you want to give us a shout out, let us know of another science fiction film that you'd be interested in hearing a review for. If you want us to dig deeper into some other scientific topic, which we could address, you want us to discuss those, you can always reach me. I am at JCS Darnell on Twitter. You can get a hold of Rob from his Facebook page, his website and YouTube channel, all named Biblical Genetics. And if you want to dig deeper into the subjects for Interstellar, you can find links to the stuff that we discussed in the show notes on our website, or you could go over to the app and find the show notes in your podcast player if you have that handy. The website is uh, nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 14 for this episode where the show notes can be found. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. And thanks everyone for listening to Equinox. There's so much about this movie, I could easily talk about it for another hour and a half. Hmm.